Good morning, everybody. Uh, good morning. Yeah, you guys are awake. It's good. It's good. Uh, it's great to be with you here as we are approaching Thanksgiving. Uh, this has been a wonderful series that we've been exploring. This huge question, uh, is sharing the good news a lost cause, or is there, in fact, a way for us to genuinely, authentically share our faith with our urban neighbors? So this morning to kick us off, I want to take you back to a fun little bit of research don't you love talking about research? Uh, there actually is this group called the Pew Research Group. got started in the 1940s, 1950s, where their goal was to survey Americans and to paint a comprehensive picture of what Americans thought, valued, and believed. So one of the very interesting questions that the Pew Research Group began to ask in the year 1958, and have asked every year since, with a large swath, thousands and thousands of Americans, is the question, uh, do I trust the government to do the right thing most of the time? Do I? Uh, any, any guesses in the year 1958 how people responded to that question? Either yes, I trust the government, or no, I do not trust the government to do the right thing most of the time. In 1958, 75% of Americans said yes, I trust the government to do the right thing most of the time. That's a whopping three out of four people. Um, by the year 1964, a few years later, the number was going up. So by 1964, the question hit its peak. A whopping 79% of Americans said they trust the government to do the right thing most of the time. And then, if you know anything about American history and politics, a few, a few problems started to emerge. So there were things like the Civil Rights Movement, uh, the Vietnam War would happen in the late 60s. It would move through the 70s into Watergate. Uh, there would be the scandals of Bill Clinton's administration with impeachment. Uh, then, surprisingly, I didn't put the graph up on screen for you, there was a slow blip up right around the year 2001, which makes sense that after September 11th, Americans started to say a little bit more readily that they trusted the government again. But the reason why I bring this up is because this year, in the year 2023, Pew Research threw out the announcement that yet again they had hit a historic all-time low in terms of Americans' response to this question. You have any guesses what the response rate was in the year 2023, the lowest it's ever been? Only 16% of Americans now say that they trust the government to do the right thing most of the time. It's never been that low. And why this is interesting is a commentator on Pew Research said, you know, this is reflective of a 70-year trend in American culture where distrust has become the new norm. So all authorities, all institutions, all of it now is viewed far more skeptically, far more warily than it ever has been before in terms of Pew Research asking this question. And I don't know about you, but I personally feel this to be true. Uh, I was thinking this past week uh, over some of the things that occurred where I felt distrust and wariness growing in me. This isn't just for politics. I recently got my hair cut, and I noticed that my barber, as I went to check out, inevitably had the option pop up. Do you want to tip 20%, 25%, 30%, or other? To which I was like, what? 
I, I want to pay you to cut my hair. I don't want to like meet your minimum wage, you know, to like help you survive. Um, I felt this with my bank this last week. I inevitably opened up my account to see that a service charge had taken place to which I was going, why is my bank charging me for their service? This feels crazy. I don't trust them either. And yet, here's the haunting thing. If I if I don't trust my barber, if I don't trust my bank, if I don't trust my politicians, then why would you ever trust the church, right? So our dilemma, our dilemma as those who are participating in church, if you would consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, is that we live in a culture right now of distrust. We live in a culture of distrust, and we feel that distrust ourselves, and we sense in our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, we sense that that distrust is so real to them. And, and here's the honest-to-goodness, difficult question that I think all of us should wrestle with. If our neighbors and friends are inclined to be distrusting, what is taking place in us that would ever cause them to trust us about the good news that we believe we have to share? I think that's our question this morning. Uh, we do, in fact, have good news. Uh, that is the encouragement to you this morning. Uh, the things taking place here in the church are very, very good. Uh, in a world of fracture, in a world that is literally at war, that is wrestling with wars taking place around the globe, we serve a God who offers us peace. There is hope for peace here in the church. In a world of loneliness, in a world where people are just looking like, where can I ever belong? Where can I fit in? Especially in the city, in a fast-paced environment where we're disconnected from our neighbors, where we don't seem to have any place that, can, that we can truly belong in. The church offers us friendship. The church offers us connection. Uh, in a world that looks at death and says, we have no idea what will take place after we die. In fact, we don't even know if generations from now, our future children are going to be able to make it in this world. The church says we know a God who is committed to redeeming all things. We have incredibly good news to share. But, but we live in a culture of distrust. So what is it that we could offer to someone who is inherently distrusting that would make them be able to receive this good news that we have to share? Well, here's the interesting thing this morning. Uh, as I was pondering this question, as we've been talking about these blessed practices, there is a passage that's a little bit surprising in the Bible. In fact, the more I was sort of pondering this passage, the more I started to realize this passage is, in fact, Jesus speaking into a culture of distrust in his days, and Jesus has a very clear way that he intends to respond to the distrust taking place around him. So I'm going to take you to this passage in the Gospel of Matthew. If you have a phone, a Bible, you want to follow along, we're going to be in Matthew 11. We'll also have it up on our screen here. Um, but in order to dive into this passage, I'll just warn you, you're going to need a little bit of context. We're going to need a few handles to kind of understand a passage that you otherwise might have moved quite quickly past. So here we go. This is Matthew 11, and we're going to start in verse 2. So here's what Matthew 11 says. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Okay, a little bit of context. First, you'll notice this name, John. It's a wonderful name. Obviously, 
I'm a fan. Uh, this is John the Baptist. If you've uh, heard any of the Bible stories, John the Baptist is a really fascinating character. In fact, the thing to know about John the Baptist is historically, the records that we have historically outside of the Gospels suggest that John the Baptist might have been more influential in his day than Jesus ever was. John the Baptist was the true revolutionary. He had thousands upon thousands of followers. He was so significant that the historian Josephus would spend extended time talking and confirming who this John the Baptist was and the message that he came to preach. So John the Baptist this is interesting because he's born into an influential family. Uh, in this Christmas story, if you recall, there's that guy, Zechariah. Uh, it's easy to miss Zechariah is the high priest at the time. Zechariah is in the middle of Jerusalem's politics, in the middle of Jerusalem's religious leadership. And Zechariah and his wife have this unexpected child in their late age that is born and out of response to this word they received from God to name their child John, he is actually sent out into the wilderness to take on this mantle of being a prophet. Now, we know from historical uh, records that there was a community in the wilderness at the time called Qumran, the Qumran community. And Qumran was famous uh, for their disgust with Rome. So Qumran hated the, the Roman Empire, hated all of the influence and politics that Rome had in Israel, and they were also disappointed with their fellow Israelites. So the Qumran community looked at Israel and said, you guys have really failed to be the people God wanted you to be. So the Qumran community's hope was that if they withdrew from society out into the wilderness, they would prepare themselves by living devout holy lives, and in their preparation, they would wait for God to come back, right? This happens over and over again through history. Communities often disappointed, uh, disillusioned with the surrounding culture, withdraw to prepare themselves. Where John the Baptist was different is that John goes, trains up in this community, but then he comes back and he now is wearing these strange goat skin, uh, leather clothes. He's eating only locust and honey, Talk about a weird sort of Atkins vegan, not vegan diet. Um, and as he comes back, he starts preaching this message that sounds a little bit like Qumran, the community that he was from, but has more uh, participation and involvement in it. So he starts saying to Israel that God is coming soon to rescue Israel. And the thing everyone needs to do is repent and be baptized. And so John is in the Jordan River which famously is where uh, Israel first entered the promised land. And he starts calling all of Israel, and again, we're told by Josephus, thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelites come to follow this message that John has taught, and they begin to repent of sins in their lives, and then they get baptized by John. Uh, John is so influential that, as you will recall if you've read the Gospels, Jesus himself gets baptized by John in the same act of solidarity, preparation, and repentance. And just, just to hold in your minds, uh, Jesus is, in fact, the cousin of John. And these two likely would have known each other their whole lives, would have been conversing their whole lives, and were in strong alignment about what was taking place, that the time had come that God was going to reappear to save Israel. But we now find, with all that background, this fascinating moment in which John the Baptist was thrown in prison. So just very briefly, I'm having too much fun up here telling you about the Roman Empire, Israel, John the Baptist. Uh, the reason John's thrown in prison is because at the time, uh, Herod the Great had a few sons 
His sons were ruling all over Israel. Herod the Great is dead. Uh, And one of his sons, Herod Antiochus, decided that one of his brothers had a wife he really liked. And so he, he asked this brother, it seems it's kind of a strange moment in history, the brother seemed okay with it. Uh, this wife got transferred over to Herod Antipas. I'm not making this up, you can look it up. Uh, and Herod Antipas marries his brother's wife, which is a little weird. I'm just, now that's my commentary. But uh, that would have caused some problems at the Thanksgiving table, I would assume. John the Baptist, this massively influential popular prophet who's calling all of Israel to repent says that is not okay (laughs) to marry your brother's wife. And so John has a moment in one of his public teachings where he calls Herod and Typhus out. You want to see where the corruption of Israel is? You want to see what we need to repent of? Look at Herod and Typhus. And as almost any ruler of any authoritarian government would do, Herod and Typhus throws John the Baptist in prison as a result. Uh, We actually will find in just a few short months from this moment that we're about to explore, John the Baptist is going to be executed by Herod Antiochus, and it's actually going to cause this revolt uprising to take place under Herod Antiochus, and he is going to get expelled uh, and later killed himself. So this should sound to you a bit like a show that they have on HBO. Uh, This should sound like if you liked Game of Thrones or Succession, just read the Gospels a little more closely because there's some crazy stuff going on here. Uh, But this all matters. This all matters. Here's where I'm going with all this. This all matters because John, who clearly loved Jesus, John, who clearly believed Jesus was, in fact, in his baptism, preparing for this moment where all this good news was going to break forth across the land, John is now himself in prison, and he is confused. In fact, I would suggest to you that John is wavering in doubt, and he's contemplating distrust in Jesus, whom he previously had trusted. And so he asked this question, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? You can almost hear the heartache in John, can't you? Because John's thinking, like, I'm, I'm expecting God to move in my life, and yet here I am in prison. I couldn't help but wonder, just as a thought, it doesn't really tell us, I couldn't help but wonder if John the Baptist was so bold calling out Herod Antiochus because he had baptized Jesus and he knew, he's like, this is it. The moment's come. Like, it's all going to change. The government's going to be overturned. Jesus is going to establish God's kingdom here and now. I'm going to say things prophetically, boldly, and yet now John the Baptist is in prison. Now, here's what's fascinating. We get the words Jesus uses to reply to John. So can I show you how Jesus chooses to respond to the distrust and the doubt that John is feeling in this moment. Here's what Jesus says. This is verse four. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. In response to John's distrust, Jesus is going to offer his deeds. So in response to John's distrust, Jesus is going to offer his deeds. He says, hey, John, look at what I am doing and ask, is God's kingdom coming now? Uh, The list is incredible. If we go back actually to this passage, verse four to five, 
Uh, the blind, those who literally don't have sight, are now seeing. The lame, those who are currently paralyzed, are now walking. Uh, the lepers, those who are outcast and ostracized for society, are now being welcomed back in. Uh, the deaf are actually hearing. In fact, the dead are coming back to life. And most importantly, the poor, those who are on the margins, the outskirts, the downtrodden, the poor are hearing this good news that God is in fact here in their midst and is working the redemption God promised. Yet Jesus knows these deeds, these, these deeds are hard to hold. In fact, he says to John, like, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. I, I almost hear Jesus saying in that, like, he knows how important it is that what he's embodying in his life is reflecting the message and beliefs that he and John had previously talked about. And so he's trying to say like, listen, I know you heard the message. I know you heard the beliefs that we shared that God's kingdom was coming, but you've got to look now at my life and you've got to see it taking place. You've got to see these actions of God moving out across through me. And if you can hold them together, then even when you yourself are caught in this horrendous situation, imprisoned, facing his own execution, you're not going to stumble because you're able to see this, this is how my deeds are reflecting the beliefs that we shared. Now, I want to jump you ahead to a, a little bit further on in Matthew 11 because Jesus is going to say something uh, that I've always been puzzled why. This is going to be one of those passages that with, again, no context, I'm like, what is Jesus saying? Do you ever have that when you're reading the Gospels? Like, okay, let's just read a little bit faster. Let's move on to a nicer part. Uh, this is from Matthew 11, though. This is the same chapter. Jesus is going to talk to a crowd, actually. We're told that he turns to a crowd and he starts talking about John the Baptist and says, listen, who is like John the Baptist? John the Baptist is incredible. Look at his deeds. Look at what he's been proclaiming to you, yet you've still been struggling to get it. Like John has been living his life with all of this uh, incredible faith, and yet you don't really see what he's getting at. And Jesus turns back to the crowd, and he's going to say this, and I think, I think this speaks to the distrust that we feel around us. This is now verse 16. Jesus says, To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Okay, let's slow down with this for one second. If you go back to verse 16 and 17. Uh, undeniably, this, Jesus begins with something that is confusing to us as 21st century Americans. Jesus starts with this picture where he says, children are sitting in a marketplace, and then strangely, I don't know how many of you have children sitting in a marketplace. Uh, my children do not often sit in marketplaces. Uh, but these children are now playing pipes, and nobody's dancing. They're singing dirges, and nobody's mourning. Okay, it's very strange. Uh, it helps to understand that in Jesus' day, Village life was so communal, especially in a Jewish society, that if there was a wedding taking place, you figure most villages had a couple hundred people, weddings would only take place every couple of years or so. Um, for a wedding, everybody would stop what they were doing to celebrate that a new marriage was taking place in the community. So actually, weddings would go on for anywhere from five to seven days. Uh, the whole community would take the bride from her previous father's house, and they would bring her into her new home with her husband waiting for her, so they'd like process her together. It was really fun. Uh, they would eat and drink for days upon days upon days. 
you don't get to not participate in a wedding if you're living in someone's village, right? You're not, you're not there with a couple hundred of your neighbors. Everybody knows who you are. You're not able to say like, hey, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna stay home for this one. You know, like I'm not really feeling uh, John and Susie's wedding this weekend. I'm, I'm just gonna sit this one out. No, no. If people were celebrating, everybody was celebrating. And the same would be true for a funeral, that if somebody died in your community, you would stop whatever you were doing and you'd go sit Shiva with their family and you'd wait for normally seven days until on the seventh day they would be buried in the ground. So this was a very prolonged, like if you're celebrating, you're not just doing it really quick with a couple of friends. It's like the whole community celebrates together and then the whole community mourns together. Uh, here's what Jesus then I think is saying, and I've tried to throw it on the screen to help the metaphor actually make sense to us. By calling this generation children, Jesus is suggesting there's two huge struggles that children have when they try to imitate the actions of their parents and the adults around them. First, the children are vulnerable to misunderstanding in terms of the context and the circumstance for why celebrating or mourning is taking place. So do you catch with these kids? The kids are trying to celebrate, and they're like, why isn't everybody dancing? Well, because it's not it's not a wedding. It's not a celebration. This isn't a festival. You don't dance now. You dance later. Uh, then they're trying to, to mourn. They're trying to lament. And they're like, why isn't everybody stopping to mourn with us? Jesus essentially says, we, like children, are often missing the context and circumstances for why Jesus is doing what Jesus is doing in the world. And if vulnerability is one dynamic of children, so they're vulnerable to misunderstanding, the second dynamic is stubbornness. <laughs> Do you hear the stubbornness in the children? The children are like, when I want to play my flute, you should start dancing. And Jesus is like, no, that's not, that's not how it works, right? Like, well, but what about when I start singing sad songs, why isn't everybody doing what I want them to do? Uh, here's the image, if we can throw the next slide up. If we've got children who are vulnerable and stubborn, Jesus is saying this generation is vulnerable to distrust and they're stubborn in their distrust. Let me give you the point in this next slide. As a result of our distrust, we end up making up our own rules and getting frustrated when nobody follows along. So the way I see this play out all the time, with Christian faith especially, is that we love to preach at people and we fail to attend seriously enough to the context and circumstances of their lives to ask what aspect of this good news do they actually need to hear right now? And how can I join them in their lives to demonstrate that good news rather than just shout at them and expect them to follow along? Uh, he, Jesus is going to say this about himself and John. I, I do kind of love this. This is Matthew eleven eighteen 18 to 19 again. You notice he says, John, John chooses a certain way to live out the kingdom of God, to express it. John actually takes on this radical posture of a prophet He's eating locusts and honey. He's like fasting and wildernessing and it's weird and bizarre and people are loving it. <laughs> but at the same time, they see John doing his weird like fasting locusts and honey thing and people dismiss him. This generation of distrust dismisses him by saying, he's got a demon. Like he doesn't know what God is up to in this world. Jesus, on the other hand, <laughs> does not fast. Instead, Jesus is like, hey, I came eating and drinking. Like, if you didn't like that John was fasting, I came to celebrate. I came for the party. And in fact, I'm sitting with sinners and with those who are outcasts, and you're dismissing me now as a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But here's where Jesus brings us all together. This is where we're going. Uh, this is the landing point 
for our reflection this morning. Jesus says, if it's easy, if, we're, if it's easy for us to be vulnerable to distrust, if it's easy for us to be vulnerable to our own stubbornness, then the response, the only response that we as a Christian community can have is to extend forth our genuine deeds, to extend forth the genuine good deeds of love that we can live out right here in our neighborhood. Uh, I believe Jesus is saying this as a response to our own personal distrust. So for those of us here who still feel within us, you know, as I talk about the government or as I talk about my barber or the bank, if you feel distrust to the church, then my encouragement to you is to first begin by looking at Jesus and asking what deeds he has offered to you. Ask him. Ask Jesus what he's done for you. Ask Jesus what what he has to offer you. Ask Jesus how he is different than your local politicians, how he is different than our governing parties. Ask Jesus how he's different than your pastor or your small group leader or the church who betrayed you back in the day. Ask him. Say, Jesus, do you act like them? Or do you act in a different way? But for us then, for us as a community of faith, if we have any hope, if we're going to have any hope of cutting through this culture of distrust that we find ourselves in, the only thing we're going to be able to do genuinely is offer them deeds of love. I really believe this is, this is it. If your neighbor is not saying yes to an invitation to come to church. The question to ask is, have I demonstrated anything to them that makes them think there's something here that they want that they're not currently getting out there? Uh, If, and this is maybe the hardest one, if your family members are not responding to your conversations about faith and you talking about the church you're part of or what you have to say about Jesus, the question is, have you demonstrated anything to your family members? that shows them how radically Jesus has transformed your own life. Um, I think uh, the challenge for us in the city especially is that we're all moving so fast. There's so much uh, just change happening around us. There's so many fun things to pursue. There's so much entertainment, but there's also so much distraction that we aren't actually doing the slow, steady work of intentionally serving clear and proximate neighbors to us in a genuine way. This is ultimately, if if we're going to evangelize it all in the city, if we're ever going to share good news, our neighbors have to see us living it out in a way that has transformed us if if it's ever going to cut through this haze in their own life. So here's what's encouraging this morning. When asked in a separate survey uh, by Barna Research Group, Barna is a Christian group. Uh, Barna was interested in asking a different question than the Pew Research Group. Barna actually asked, uh, who, who would you be open to hearing uh, dynamics, aspects of the faith from? And they gave a couple options. They said you could hear it from a celebrity of some kind. You could hear it from a respected teacher. Uh, you could hear it from an institution of some kind. You could hear it through the radio, through YouTube, through all the rest. The most uh, commented, the most selected response in Barna's question, was inevitably 79% of people saying, I wouldn't mind hearing about this good news from a friend, (laughs) right? Like, if it was somebody I actually knew, if it was somebody I actually trusted, if it was somebody who had actually loved me over the long haul, then of course, I would be open to hearing what mattered to them. So 
here to close, I just want to offer you three tangible, simple actions uh, that I think we could all partake in, in a very tangible way. And really, the heartbeat of these three steps, the heartbeat of this S in our blessed practices, we've been moving through a couple of tangible ways that we can actually love our neighbors. The heart of this S to serve is ultimately the motivation to simply be a friend to those who are around you. So three very simple, practical steps. First, we can step up into people's lives. You're often going to find that as you look at Jesus, what Jesus was doing, Jesus does not begin with his own message. Instead, Jesus often begins with the need that is being presented to him. So when it comes to your neighbors, it's less probably going to be you saying to them, hey, uh, Christmas time, would love to get you coming to my thing. I, I've got this church. It's pretty cool. You're going to want to come check it out. Instead, the real uh, first step for you moving towards friendship is to simply ask your friend, hey, is there anything I could participate in in your life this Christmas? Like, is there a recital I could go to? Is there a, an evening that you're free that you're looking for a friend? Is there something that matters to you that I could simply step up and, and be present to? The second step for us could be those of us who might need to, and I say this genuinely and with love, might need to shut up in the lives of our friends. Uh, if stepping up is helpful, I think for most of us, especially when it comes to Christian faith and even when it comes to this conversation around serving, um, we haven't actually paused to ask what the needs are that our friends are revealing to us, around us. Um, I've actually started this fascinating experiment over the last couple of weeks. So I'm only a couple of weeks into this. You probably haven't noticed or felt any difference in my life. Uh, but I've started to notice that I was getting just more and more drawn into my own world of needs. Like I was in my own head. I was struggling a bit with a little bit of depression. I kind of felt low. I, I was just noticing it was like anytime I talked to a friend, I was kind of telling them, you know, this is what's going on in my life. And like, there's a lot going on. And like, I'm kind of wrestling with these couple of things. And so as I was working on this, trying to figure out, man, how do I break this deadlock of self-centeredness in my own life? Um, I started this simple practice of a journal where every night I would ask myself, what conversations have I had today? What conversations have I had today? And then I would just spend a little bit of time asking, like, what happened in those conversations? And as I did that, I started to realize I talk a lot. <laughs> I, I was doing a lot of the talking most of the time. And sometimes I was struck that I couldn't recall a single thing that a person was saying to me in between the cracks of, you know, just the like, how are you pleasantries day by day. But as I started doing this practice, um, I've noticed that now I'm starting to pause my speech far more often. And I'm starting to ask more genuine questions. And I'm starting to listen that much closer. Uh, final, final way connected to all this, stepping up, shutting up, we can show up in a person's life. I, I think uh, as you begin to move through these blessed practices where you're praying for somebody, you're listening to them, you're eating with them, you really do see that those around us have very real, pressing, and genuine needs. So needs often, I'll say this in the city, I'm always amazed, like financial needs are so real. Most of us are living sort of maxed out, stretched out to our margins. And so one way you can show up for a friend, especially a coworker, a neighbor, is you could get them something small. It's just a gift. And it could be simple as buying them a coffee. 
could be an act of service. could be as simple as paying for their lunch someday unexpectedly. And, and I know what's hard about this is because we often are stretched, we're maxed out. Uh, it means that you might have to forego a coffee. You might have to forego eating out the next time if you're going to show up and pay for your friend. Uh, but it, of course, can go so much more beyond this. And these simple acts of showing up could be a neighbor who you help with the door as they're trying to get in, carry a bag of groceries for them. It could be a homeless person on the street that you pause what you're doing and say, I'm gonna go back and I'm, I'm gonna strike up a conversation. I, I'm gonna run into the grocery store. I'm gonna get him a sandwich. It could be all the way to you going out of your way this Christmas to just start asking friends that you're investing in. Hey, can I, can I show up for you? Like what's one thing that you could really use me to help you with. Like, I care about you. I want to help you. How could I help you this Christmas? Imagine a friend sort of being taken aback, a little bit on their heels, and yet imagine then what they might reveal or say and how much closer you might be to them on the other side. Um, one of my favorite final examples of this that I hold up as a positive illustration of the change that we could make uh, was that about two years ago, the rapper, Chance the Rapper, uh, was on Jimmy Kimmel. I don't know if, you, if any of you saw this, but he was doing a tour, he was on Jimmy Kimmel, and uh, for some reason, Chance the Rapper, who's been very explicit about his faith, uh, had been getting involved in the school districts here in Chicago, and I think he had recently done a matching pledge of like a million dollars or something like that, which is great if you're a rapper and hopefully you have lots of money that you can help out schools with. But my favorite part about this story is that Jimmy Kimmel looks at Chance the Rapper and he says, Chance, that's like a million dollars to school. That's a lot of money. Why would you do that? And as only the disarming joy of Chance the Rapper could, could offer, Chance goes, well, like Jesus? Uh, and everyone awkwardly laughs in the room. And yet, uh, as my wife and I at the time were talking about it, we're like, isn't it amazing to see a celebrity, someone publicly, have built the kind of credibility that the reason people are allowing him to speak about Jesus is because he has first served in a tangible, radical way. I pray for us, I hope. In fact, I'm convinced we will not save anyone if we do not first serve them. And so this aspect of the blessed practices and, and everything that we're doing from Lincoln Park Community Services, which would love your help to serve on Tuesday, uh, to your small groups where you get a chance to be in proximity to each other's needs, where you can be friends to people here in this church, you can serve them, all the way to now intentional steps you can take to follow Jesus into this culture of distrust and to offer radical, generous, but just small intentional acts of service. That is the hope for us, how we could cut through a culture of distrust and help our neighbors to hear this good news of what Jesus offers them. So let me pray for us before we move to the table. Jesus, I pray first for those who need to see your good deeds for themselves. Even as we move now to this table, Jesus, would you give us eyes to hear afresh the good news you not only came to proclaim, but that you came to model. Good news that those who are blind are now seeing, those who are paralyzed are now walking, 
those who are hungry are now being fed, those who are lonely are now being connected. Jesus, as you offer us your good deeds, we pray that we might be a community known for the good deeds that we extend to others. Jesus, I pray there'd be a a movement even as we go into this Christmas, as we move into this intentional time where we want to extend the openness of our doors. We want to invite our neighbors in. We want the city to hear and see this incredible message of what you've done at Christmas and coming for us first, Jesus, first. May we be friends who serve so that when we serve, they will be able to see your love flowing through us and be able to know you in new ways. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.